Are you struggling to replicate the bugs and performance issues customers are reporting? Plug Raygun into your web and mobile apps right now and diagnose problems in minutes rather than hours. Kiss goodbye to having to dig through log files and relying on frustrated users to report issues. Make your software development life so much easier using Raygun's error, crash, and performance monitoring tools. Every software team can create flawless software experiences for their customers with Raygun. Try it free today at raygun.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Back in the studio. Doing the thing. Doing the thing with the stuff. How okay. you doing, man? Uh, you know, been a great summer. I have gotten far less writing done than I planned. I think I was just essentially deluded. This idea that I would have time in the summer to just focus on working on the book. Right. You know, up on the coast, but anytime I'm on the coast, people want to be there. It's beautiful there. I think I'm going to have to finish the book through the winter on the coast when nobody wants to be there. Got to just like go to the library, you know, someplace where you're not distracted by, oh, wait a minute, what am I saying? (laughs) (laughs) You in the library, that's one big distraction. Yeah, not a good thing, not at all. That is just one big pile of rabbit hole for me. That's right, yeah. But but sitting in the coast place, just looking at the ocean, when I have it to myself, it's fantastic. It's just that in the summer, you don't have it to yourself. Yeah, sure. Hey, uh, I got something interesting for Better Know Framework, so roll the crazy music. All right, dude, what do you got? It's a story that uh, came out in The Verge on my birthday, August 11th. Ah, Happy birthday. Um, Yeah. Well, I thought you would find this interesting because it touches Mm -hmm. a couple of um, things that interest you. The U.S. Navy will replace its touchscreen controls with mechanical controls on its destroyers. Interesting. Because of a deadly 2017 crash between a destroyer and an oil tanker that apparently the the touchscreen controls got in the way or they failed. I, you know, the thing with touchscreens is that lack of haptic feedback, right? Like, what do you bet in a bit of a panic you mess those things up? They're also just more complex, right? There's more things yeah. that can possibly go wrong. Um, the the good old mechanical controls work because they're just the laws of physics, you know, simplified. Yeah, I don't I don't know that you have any advantage on a touchscreen and obviously some specific disadvantages too. Mm-hmm. I've I've read a couple of pieces around the accident with the McCain and yeah. so forth. I mean, there were there were lots of problems, but um, this looks like one of them. Yeah. Um, the bigger one was, I think they, they've actually made their radar systems so complex that there are not enough people on a given ship that understand them. And they have problems recruiting and retaining people skilled in that sort of stuff. And mm. they were actually in the wrong radar mode and didn't even realize it. It just makes me go back to the idea of physical keys. Like we're all walking around with physical keys on our keychains. And yeah. the reason is because they work. Yeah, I got a few digital keys too. And they, they're pretty good, but... Right up to you don't have electricity, then they're really not that good. Yeah, when the battery dies in your fob, your yeah. key stops working. Good are you? Or, or yeah, it's worse when you're using an RFID, which is passive, and the ba- and the power's out in the building. Yeah, and you literally cannot nothing to read the RFID signal. Right. So yeah, there's 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 something in there, I think. But anyway, that's what I got. Who's talking to us today, Richard Campbell? So I grabbed a comment off of show six eighty nine. Oh my. <laughs> We're talking to Sean Walker today, and I went. I had to at least look at the last time we had Sean on, which is literally eight years to the day or within the week. Wow! We talked to him about .NET Nuke, yeah, uh, and a so few things now. to just give you some context. Jumping back eight years, one is show six eighty eight was the first geek out. Wow! So yes. That was this Carl and Richard Space Out show, which, if you recall, I thought was an incredibly bad idea. That's right. And, and resisted every step of the way, and I was wrong. You yeah. were right. This was entirely your idea. But uh, and, well, it's hard uh, to tell what it's hard to tell what you know because what you like to talk about is what you like to talk about. But I see it from everybody else's perspective. Wow, yeah. that's a great conversation. Well, and of course, the comments in 688 play that out. What's interesting is they even spill over into 689. Hmm. 
where these folks are still saying, oh, by the way, keep doing the geek outs. Yeah. But uh, the particular, so we, we were talking about .NET Nuke back then, and right. believe it or not, migrating to C Sharp from VB.net. And just so again, people who don't know, .NET Nuke is a, it was a really, um, one of the first content management systems for building out websites. Uh, certainly for .NET, .NET yeah. On the .NET platform. Mm-hmm. I buy spy, my goodness, like yeah. just right back to the original stuff. But this particular comment ties directly into that. This is from Anders Lundsberg, uh, who says, Hey guys, I love the idea of the Geek Out shows, and I'd like to suggest a topic. I was chatting with Richard at the Green Lion Inn in Ordev last year. <laughs> yeah. Remember the Green Lion? I do. How could I forget? Uh, that was a lot of whiskey, man. Yeah. And he introduced the topic of sous vide cooking to me. I had never heard of it before. I was quite intrigued by the idea. It sounds like such a scientific, incredibly geeky way of cooking. Mm. Anyway, I want to know more. How does it work? What gear do you need? And what are some cool recipes? I think it would make a nice show. And thanks for the great podcast. See you again in Ordev next November, which I don't know that we went. I think we probably did. But it, uh, yeah, you know, there you go. There Spilling go. over from the previous show, and we never have done a show, a geek out on sous vide. I don't know if there's much. I don't know if there's an hour there. Yeah, I would tend to agree. Now, but maybe it was in 2008 when it was yeah. new and innovative. But right. uh, today, it's uh, I think pretty well known. And hopefully, Anders already has a device and hasn't waited on us to make a show about it. Hopefully not. I mean, I use my Anova Precision Cooker uh, every week. Yeah, it's just that ability to throw food in the bin essentially in the water and mm. walk away and know two hours from now i can pull it out or three hours from now it doesn't really matter doesn't really matter you've got a safe window so anders thank you so much for your comment a copy of music to co is on its way to you and if you'd like a copy of music to co buy write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or on facebook we publish every show there and if you comment there and i read it on the show we'll send you a copy of music to co buy and uh definitely follow us on twitter i'm at carl franklin he's at rich campbell send us a tweet we will convert them into abacus. Really? Mechanical. Nice. <laughs> I was reading a great little article about why we call, a, we have uppercase and lowercase, which a lot of languages don't have. And it's because literally it was the boxes of the typefaces. The uppercase was for the for the big letters and the lowercase was for the small letters positionally on in the for the, uh, the printing machine. That is fascinating. Case. It's totally random. Case. Literally, case. it was a, the case, the box that they sat in. Wow. Neat. All right. Well, let's bring Sean back after eight years. Sean Walker has 25 plus years professional experience in architecting and implementing enterprise software solutions for private and public organizations. Sean is the original creator of .NET Nuke, a web application framework, which is one of the pioneering open source software apps native to the Microsoft platform. He was one of the original founders of DNN Corp, a commercial software company providing products, services, and tech support for .NET Nuke, which raised three rounds of venture capital from top-tier Silicon Valley investors. Based on his significant community contributions, he's been recognized as an MVP, Microsoft MVP, as well as an ASP insider for over 10 consecutive years. He was recognized by business in Vancouver as a leading entrepreneur in their 40 Under 40 Business Awards, was a founding member of the board of directors of the Outer Curve Foundation, and is currently chairman of the Advisory Council for Microsoft's .NET Foundation. Sean is currently a technical director and enterprise guildmaster at Cognizant Softvision. Welcome back, Sean. It's great to be back. Uh, it's crazy it's, uh, that it's been eight years. It uh, seems like a long time, but it went by really fast. And your bio's changed a little bit. Uh, since eight years ago, yeah, <laughs> definitely has. Lots yeah. has changed. Yeah, you would hope. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure life has changed for you quite a bit, too. Yeah, when I think back uh, 2011 uh, and, and the fact that you mentioned that uh, we were migrating from the version of DNN that was Visual Basic based to C Sharp, that seems like ages ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I hadn't heard the term, you know, I realized just thinking about your your uh, your bio that .NET Nuke was one of the very first open source projects associated with the Microsoft space. And you've done all of those growing pains of how do you make a living from an open source product? Like you've been involved mm. in every bit of that. Yeah, it definitely had its share of challenges over the years, especially in the early days um, when we were just doing it very organically. Um, certainly Microsoft had uh, a share in its success in the, in the very early stages by sponsoring me for, for a year. But um, 
Yeah, it, it's definitely been a long haul. Um, I, uh, I eventually left DNN Corp in 2014, and that was quite a long run. So I had originally started that back in uh, late 2002. So uh, that right. quite a large portion of my professional life dedicated to DNN. And where does Outer Curve fit into the equation these days? Because we've got, we've got the .NET Foundation and so forth like that. This Outer Curve predates all of that. Yeah, so Outer Curve, um, I believe that was around maybe 2011, 2012, when Microsoft decided mm -hmm. that they wanted to create a, a non-profit um, foundation to manage their open source initiatives. Um, Outer Curve is still around, but it's uh, significantly wound down in favor of the .NET Foundation now. Right. Yeah. And, and you're, of course, involved in that as well. Yeah. So uh, that was started in 2014. Um, and at the time, I guess it was Jay Schmelzer who uh, was leading the effort internally at Microsoft to get the .NET Foundation going, along with some other folks like Martin Woodward. Um, I had actually just left DNN Corp at that time. Um, and I guess based on some of the experience that I had with working with uh, open source communities, um, I had the opportunity to work with those guys as they got it set up. Um, I actually authored the original charter for the advisory council for the .NET Foundation um, as I had some free free time on my hands that summer. So um, it's, I think the .NET Foundation has really provided a lot of value to the .NET community. I think every significant uh, .NET-based open source project is probably a member of the foundation at this point. Um, and they've done some pretty amazing things in recent years in terms of opening up the membership. I mean, they have a, a, uh, an election of the board. Um, so I even actually ran <laughs> for a seat in that election. But there's a really strong board of, of people with various backgrounds now that, that make up the board. Uh, John Galloway's doing a super great job of <laughs> making sure that everything uh, gets done Yeah. when it comes to the .NET Foundation. Well, we're here to talk about Blazor, aren't we? Yeah, uh, I know you had uh, Steve Sanderson and Dan Roth on a on a previous show. Yeah, that was around uh, April when the uh, official preview came out. I think. Actually, if you think about it, if we took the time to curate it, we have shows about every single stage of Blazor because we did a show with Sanderson at NDC, right? The first time he showed the prototype of it. Yeah, people went nuts. Well, that's, yeah, it was David Fowler, you know, David Fowler's head just about exploded, which is just something, saying something. Yeah. yeah, I actually heard from folks within Microsoft that uh, a lot of people didn't know what Steve had been working on. And he did that initial presentation at NDC Oslo. And some of his managers were actually in attendance in the audience and they were blown away. They couldn't believe what he demonstrated. And it's so in deep into ASP.NET now that they actually call it server-side Blazor now, not ASP.NET Core Razor components. Yeah, it's gone through a share of changes. I, I think so initially, uh, Blazor was sort of synonymous with this client-side model uh, with you know WebAssembly. Um, but over time, it's evolved now to also include a server-side model. And, and that's what they're actually shipping uh, in September. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, C-sharp on the server, who would have thunk it? Like, <laughs> why is this why is this a thing <laughs> are you asking why is server-side blazer um a yeah hot new you know the client side was the breakthrough right that's what this is all about and then there's been this wave of well server-side yeah no it's funny it's a good question um, I, th I think the cool part about blazer is it's got a component model and Really, I, I think that um, as far as web technology goes and .NET, the last really good component technology was WebForms. And I'm going to say that and people are going to say that, well, WebForms is terrible, but um, it had a really good component model to it where you could build components and reuse them across different applications. In fact, right. I mean, that's, that's really how .NET Nuke um, was built from the ground up using a lot of reusable components. And then it allowed people to build reusable modules, which they could share with one another as well. And so Blazor actually has a really strong component model, which was sort of lacking in previous versions. Like MVC really didn't have a great component model. Right. So yeah. that's what people are excited about. And that's why Blazor on the server side makes a lot of sense, because you can leverage this component model. Do you think this is a Microsoft field specific thing that my, the developers used to developing in .NET really like component models or is it just genuinely no matter who you are this is a superior way to build software 
a good question. I, I, I think that it's a superior way to build software. I mean, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to be building the same things over and over again. Why not reuse as much as possible? Um, I, I think that that is also a common theme in other languages as well. Um, so, yeah, sure. I don't think it's unique to the Microsoft platform. Yeah, React certainly with uh, components and all sorts of these service uh, client-side things are creeping that way. Well, and in fact, I think that largely the concepts of Blazor and the component model have been taken from, at least conceptually, from some of these more popular JavaScript frameworks like Angular and React and Vue mm -hmm. and others. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, it, we always loved the component model uh, in Microsoft development technologies going back to Visual Studio and Visual Basic before that. Yeah. Any wind forms? Yeah, I agree. It's a highly productive way of building software. Where, right. Yeah, you don't have to get down into the details as much. If you think back to, to the web forms days and think of some of the commercial vendors that were successful at that time with their component suites, you know, and there was quite a few of them that we relied upon heavily, like Telerik and Infogistics and others. Mm. Um, I mean, that component model, uh, those same vendors are actually getting pretty excited about Blazor for the same reason. Yeah. So what does it look like to build Blazor applications these days? Obviously, it's not like uh, the Visual Basic of yesterday, but um, certainly what is it? what's the, the thing we're going to notice, the striking difference between the way we do things with, say, MVC? Uh, well, again, I guess it comes back to the component model and the way that you have to abstract everything as a component. Um, and then it really depends on... Uh, I guess what your goals are, but you have the ability to target um, both of the hosting models that are available. So you can even today write applications that take advantage of the client side model in WebAssembly, uh, or you can take advantage of server side, or you can build applications that target both. Um, in order to do that, you have to you know architect your application in a certain way, but um, it allows a lot of flexibility and 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 power in terms of building apps. Are, are we thinking spa-ish here? Does it tend to be a single-page app or is it more traditional webby style? Uh, no, it, it really emulates the single-page application model. Mm -hmm. And I guess that that's another benefit. Again, if you want to build a single-page application and you don't necessarily want to use some of these larger front-end JavaScript-based frameworks, um, Blazor, even on the server side, is a good model for doing that. So you can build an application that feels like a spa application, but it basically is still running server side, um, and it's all written using C sharp rather than JavaScript. Uh, and what's powering it is essentially SignalR. And so the the yeah, I was going to say if you're going to compare Angular to client side Blazor, I don't think the .NET runtime is smaller than Angular. <laughs> um, no, and and this is like for client side Blazor. That's where there still needs to be some optimizations that are made, because uh, it actually has to, you know, download a lot of assemblies to the browser in order for it to run fun like effectively. And so they really need to come up with a more optimized version of .NET um, to make that effective. And that's why they've pushed out the release date for client side Blazor until potentially later this year, early uh, 2020. So what is the client technology then when you're doing server-side? Are you just rendering everything into HTML? Uh, so you're writing C-sharp, um, just like you would normally do if you were writing, you know, web forms or MVC. Uh, yeah, and it's still targeting HTML as, as its sort of output language. Um, yeah, so not, it's not anything different in terms of the underlying technologies that are being used. It's not, it's not rendering some kind of a proprietary new format or anything. You, you actually build your applications using standard C-sharp uh, in, in the standard way, and then you mm -hmm. compile the, those applications. And then in the server-side model, those assemblies are running, obviously, on the server, and the user interface is being generated um, via interaction via SignalR. That's, um, and so it's actually doing DOM differences over SignalR uh, with, the, with the browser. So it still provides a very responsive feel for the application. Sure. Yeah, I guess it's a little more latency sensitive, but you know, it all depends on it. I would certainly think in your typical forms over data internal application, latency is not a question. It's just maintainability. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And that that is one of the, I guess the big questions about server side Blazor is 
you know, how scalable is SignalR? Um, it's pretty that, darn scalable from what I understand. Yeah. And especially I mean, if you're even, using their, their service. That's right. And you can yeah. even use it with functions. Yep. Yeah. So it, uh, I think that I haven't seen benchmarks and I'm pretty sure those will be coming soon because obviously server side blazer is shipping in like a month. So, um, we're going to pretty soon be able to see some, you know, performance benchmarks using different, um, services, you know, the, the Azure signal R service, I'm sure is going to be way more scalable than just the basic, but you should be able to run uh, blazer server side applications, even in the most basic, um, Azure service accounts. Right. Yeah. I guess that's interesting when you think about corporate dev these days is how much it's going to be on-prem at all and how much it's just going to be Azure stuff. From a developer perspective, where there's a lot of excitement around Blazor, is at least when you're building a lot of these large single page applications today, you really need people with different specialized skills. So you'll have you know front end developers who are more skilled with JavaScript, you'll have back end developers mm-hmm. that are more skilled with C sharp, and it's getting very difficult to find the right mix of those resources. Um, I mean, we we have that problem today when we're trying to staff our projects and getting the right balance um, to make up our our functional teams. Um, but with Blazor, you use the same C-sharp technology, obviously, to build the back end as you do the front end. So in theory, I mean, people with back end skills can be used uh, more effectively to build the entire full stack application. How is the ecosystem of third-party components for Blazor coming along? Uh, I think it's still early days. Uh, some of the folks that you would expect um, to be involved already, like the uh, you know the Progress Telerix and others, have already started putting together some um, minimal tool sets, um, mm-hmm. some some component suites that you can use to build applications. Yeah. Um, I'm expecting some big announcements come September that there'll be you know a bunch more um, vendors building tools. Yeah, it's it's not just the the incumbents, and it's interesting to think about Telerik and DevX as the incumbents because they were the new guys when .NET came out. Yeah, but now you have the the Radsons of the world. Like, there's other new organizations that are coming in on the Blazor bandwagon and offering components that way. So, it, yeah, we're we're an interesting time. It seems like a new wave of component vendors. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I saw something the other day from Radson where uh, they are already focusing on Blazor. It'll be interesting to see how much marketing Microsoft puts behind Blazor because that'll be an indicator of sort of, you know, how much excitement there's going to be in the community and how much investment people are going to make into uh, utilizing it. Well, it's one of the battles with the modern .NET now being an open source product is can you sell commercial tooling against an open source product? Does that make sense? You would know, Sean. <laughs> well, it's certainly possible. Um, and I, I think that there's, you know, different business models that have proven to be successful. Um, you can have, you know, a, a more simplified open source version and then a more premium commercial version. That's like the open core model. That's the model that uh, DNN um, has been using for quite some time fairly effectively. Uh, other open source, you know, commercial open source companies have used a similar model. Others focus on, you know, providing the the open source tooling for free and then relying on consulting services or perhaps um, like uh, the cloud hosting services or other types of services around it. That's other. That's another pretty good model. I, if I look at um, like outside the Microsoft ecosystem and I look at folks like, you know, Red Hat did that effectively. Um, Acquia is doing that effectively around the Drupal technology. Um, so that's a pretty popular model as well. Yeah, I think the it, I, I'm always concerned about crippling software. I kind of feel like it's the support model or maybe multiple instances, that kind of thing that uh, that makes sense. Yeah, personally, I'm, I guess I'm leaning more towards the providing the services around a really stellar open source product that is not crippled in any way. I think that right. that serves the needs of consumers a lot better uh, and still provides a lot of opportunity for monetization. Yeah, so then the balance is the ecosystem, like the third party sort of uh, influencers and so forth that are providing that support for free versus paid support from the company. It is an interesting balance to, to say, because you kind of want both, right? 
part of what makes a product successful are those advocates. You always have the rock star types, the, those charismatic personalities that like your product and, and are out there pushing it. You want to support those people, but at the same time, if they're, they're taking away from your ability to make a living, that's hard. Yeah. And that, that's sort of the, the, the trick with open source ecosystems where there's a commercial yeah. element is finding the right balance. Um, it, it's interesting in the DNN community, there were some, early hosting providers that got involved and specialized in providing a DNN website hosting. And they, I think, en ended up making out uh, monetarily a lot better than uh, than the folks who were actually creating the product in the early days. Um, but I also saw that if those hosting providers didn't exist, then the product wouldn't have gained such popularity because, you you know, you can't have one without the other. So... And that, yeah, the hosting model, of course, is a perfect lock-in because you're going to stay there every, you're going to get billed every month. It's very hard to move off of it. And it's providing a powerful service in that sense, right? This is what keeps your system up and takes that pain away from you. Yep, that's right. I just found an Asteroids game. That's oh, is that done. what that noise was? <laughs> it's done with Blazer. Yeah, that's what that noise was. <laughs> Yeah, so that's, uh, the, that's the other cool part is uh, so you can build some pretty interesting things with Blazor, especially on the like the client side version. Um, I just died. Sorry. You can build like full on games, um, and it, it's quite an interesting technology from that perspective. And so he's just using the canvas capabilities of of HTML of, HTML of the of the browser DOM to be able to just draw directly on the screen. Yeah. Yeah, it looks that way. I'm going to add a link to it. It's a WebAssembly demo. It's not a Blazor demo per se, but. Right. I think it is well, written in Blazor. Yeah, it could be written in anything when it's WebAssembly, right? That's part of part of what makes it create the whole thing so crazy. It's just like could it's just C running in the browser. Could be anything. You don't really know, other than it's in the sandbox of the browser. But I'm I'm fascinated to swing to the server side model specifically for I, I would guess correct me if I'm wrong here, Sean. It's the forms over data business, right? Like the or is there other things you can build with server side Blazor? Uh, no, I think you, you can, obviously that's probably the main use case, but you can build mm -hmm. um, a lot of uh, functional applications, uh, even, uh, yeah, probably, I, th I think the other interesting use for it is building um, functional mobile applications. So, um, so rather than using native mobile technologies, um, right. you can actually you know, you could build progressive web applications, which function quite well as mobile applications, and you could build them using Blazor as the underlying technology. Are they actually progressive web apps? Like, is there literally just a mode that uses the progressive web app manifest and features? Uh, no, you have to layer that in, but it's pretty simplistic to do that. I've seen a few examples of that already. Yeah, it's it's very easy. Interesting. And you wonder if there's in the framework waiting to emerge on that side as well. It's just config. That's right. But... We are talking about one of the advantages of this server-side Blazor is that it should run equally well PC, laptop, tablet, phone. Yeah, in fact, at the MVP Summit earlier this year, it was interesting. Steve Sanderson did a demo, and the the sort of known hosting models for Blazor are you know client-side using WebAssembly and server-side, but he also demonstrated using uh, Electron um, to build a desktop application. And he actually used the exact same components. So the exact same set of code that was built as component was targeted at these different hosting models and didn't have to have any changes. It was all configuration. What? It was actually making an Electron app? Yeah. They were using the Electron host from Blazor? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, my head officially exploded just at that <laughs> moment. Like, wait, <laughs> I was going to, because there's a conversation here about Blazor and Electron are rivals. Uh, no, I think they're complimentary. Hey guys, hold that thought while we take a moment for this very important message. Hey, remember the Uno platform we talked about on a show a few months back? The open source guys enabling C-sharp developers to write single code base apps for mobile and web via WebAssembly? Well, now they're running a conference in Montreal with speakers like Miguel de Acaza, Billy Hollis, and more. Go to www.unoconf. Dot com for details. That's U-N-O-C-O-N-F dot com and use code DNR25 to get 25% off the conference price. 
Hey, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're going to be hosting the .NET Developer Days Conference in Warsaw, Poland, October 23rd through the 25th. Developer Days is one of the largest events in Central and Eastern Europe dedicated to application development on the .NET platform. And we'll be recording a number of shows from the conference and hanging out with you. And early bird pricing ends August 31st. So go to developerdays.pl and get your tickets now. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell, and Sean Walker are talking about Blazor. And I think Richard's head just exploded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the ability to target these, you know, Blazor components at all these different hosting models, and I'm sure there'll be more that emerge in the future, is one of the huge capa- you know, capabilities that's, uh, I think, got so much potential. So you can... Sanderson demonstrated targeting Blazor server-side to Electron. Yep. Yep. So building, uh, it was basically the Electron shell uh, running Blazor components. And the same Blazor components that were running in the web or on the client side. So it's a pretty adaptable component model. So Blazor spitting out HTML and Electron rules and the Electron host just picks them up and renders. Yeah, I'm not sure how how the Electron model actually works under the covers. I haven't played with that at all. But I mean, if, from a visual perspective, what he demonstrated, it all looked very, uh, very native. Wow. Wild. Yeah, Jeez. you know, in theory, recognizing that all the Blazor's doing on the back end is spitting out HTML, any of these HTML frameworks could work. Every time we talk about Blazor, the, the nagging question, and the answer is always the same, though, but is there anything that it can't do? <laughs> right? Is yeah. there any is there any uh Achilles heel that Blazor has? Um well I think the Achilles heel will be maybe using the wrong hosting model for your use case. And uh I guess the fact that it's going live in September with server side, um I think that I, I hope it doesn't um get used in the wrong way. And what would that be, the wrong way? Well, maybe you know, trying to build applications that would better be um, or better better suited for running in the browser um, and trying to run them on the server and expecting the type of performance that you would get in the browser as a as a native browser app. So it's more web formsy than than uh, the client side Blazor model. Right, and that's why I think that a lot of people would probably prefer to run in the client side model, where and which yeah. is much similar to uh, more similar to Angular or React, right, where. The UI sure. is all running natively in the browser, and you're only relying on server connectivity for you know service calls to get data. Yeah, yeah, which is not necessarily what you're doing here. So you can easily build a UI that's going to perform poorly over a, a signal R call. Like it could be a lot of data being hauled back and forth. Yeah, just the same kind of problems that we were having intrinsically with web forms and view state and things like that. Yeah, except that you're in control of it now. Yeah, so that's why I was talking about building the wrong application, maybe for the hosting model. Yeah. Um, you kind of have to understand the, the nuances between them. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's been it's been interesting. So I first started working with Blazor, I guess, back – it's almost a year now. So I think it was back last October. Uh, it was early stages for Blazor then. And uh, it was actually Scott Hunter that reached out to me and said it, asked me if I'd taken a look at Blazor yet. Um, I have fairly – long relationship with Scott. He, um, actually in 2011, eight years ago, he spoke at the, uh, DNN summit event in, in Orlando, Florida. He was one of our guest speakers. And cool. so we've stayed in touch since then. And he's always had, um, an appreciation, I guess, for the, the DNN community. And, uh, he's always been looking for ways to move the DNN community forward because the DNN product itself is still written using web forms. Uh, and it needs to undergo some kind of a migration effort to you know, get it up to modern standards. And so he had asked me if I had looked at Blazor because he felt that the component model in Blazor um, would, is really conducive for building uh, like a framework like DNN, which is you know very dynamic. And so I started taking a look at it. Then it took quite you know, it took me probably a month to get my head around it. Um, and I wanted to. Most of the examples that are available for Blazor are more static examples. Um, they're not dynamic, which is what's more required if you're building a framework. Um, and so eventually I got hooked up with uh, Dan Roth and Steve Sanderson and 
Um, they were quite helpful in showing me some of the more, I guess, undocumented primitives that are part of Blazor um, that you can take advantage of to do more dynamic things. Um, and so what I ended up doing was building a prototype application which kind of emulates what DNN uh, conceptually um, functions like. And I built it all natively in Blazor. So the notion of having dynamic pages with modules that are rendered dynamically that compose a page, um, the ability to have, you know, uh, multiple sites or, a, you know, a multi-tenant application, all of these capabilities I've sort of built into a new open source project that I called Octane. I got to include a link to that. Yeah, so it's still, I would say, early stages. Um, you definitely mm -hmm. can't compare it in terms of functionality to what DNN offers today. Um, but I think it's headed in a direction where uh, it, it could be a good, solid starting point for developers who want to get started with Blazor, um, which was really what one of the biggest benefits of DNN was in the early days as well. You know, it's a fully functional application um, that you could open up, look at all the source code, see how it works. It demonstrates a lot of different techniques that, uh, you know, you might need to explore in building a Blazor application. Um, and it's all built natively using the more modern techniques. So it uses, you know, uh, HTTP service requests, uses a repository pattern. It, you know, it uses all the more modern uh, techniques for building a, a modern web application. And I also have made sure that it functions in both the client-side Blazor model as well as a server-side Blazor model. Um, so that um, regardless of you know, how you want to build your application, you can choose the hosting model that suits your needs. Interesting. And so just a set of tools to help people explore Blazor too, about you know, what if you were going to build a site using Blazor, what would you do? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great place to get started. It'll have the same capabilities as DNN in that people could build applications that plug in. Um, so you, basically the concept of installable um, and reusable modules. Um, so right. the same way that there was an ecosystem that sprung up around DNN, um, I'm hoping that it will be possible with this um, new framework as well. You're going to dive back into this lifestyle again, Sean. <laughs> well, I know, and it seems crazy. I th after um, I ended my time with DNN, I, I took some some time off and I, I thought, yeah, I, I don't think I'll do another framework again. <laughs> um, but then uh, it's just something that I've always cared a lot about is um, creating ways for developers to be more productive. So rather than like, this is just my preferred way of building applications is not to start from scratch and build a lot of mundane code that, you know, is common for every application. I'd rather just have a, a more functional foundation that I can build on top of and focus on business logic that's most important for me. Um, and I don't think that for .NET Core, there's a lot of uh, good frameworks that exist, you know, that that exemplify sort of more modern web technology. Uh, most of the frameworks that exist for .NET today were originally built on web forms, and some of them have, you know, made migration efforts to move forward. But unfortunately, some of them still have a lot of baggage. So, well, and the leap to Blazor is a pretty big leap. It, am I jinxing thing if if I call this, you know, the new Silverlight? <laughs> I think you are jinxing it because I wouldn't say that. <laughs> okay. I didn't. No, maybe so, I didn't say that then. Because well, obviously Silverlight had a, a very terrible end, um, but it's very different than Silverlight in the sense that Silverlight required you to install a plugin in the browser. Yes. Yeah. Whereas Web is like this is you know this doesn't require any special proprietary, um, you know, software plugin. So, yeah, it's in the end, it's just HTML, and it even runs on an iPhone, right? Or an iPad. But that, and that's the thing is, if if Silverlight existed today, and it sort of does, but it doesn't really. You know, you think about what it would take to what a modern web forms uh, data over forms tool would look like. It clearly have to work on all these different form factors, and you'd want a unified language. You'd want to be tolerant of multiple browsers. You know, it's the Blazor and, and a good framework around it. These are the ingredients of what new forms over data should look like. Are any of the browser manufacturers, for lack of a better word, the browser uh, brands not playing nice with WebAssembly? 
not so far. It was originally um, um, Mozilla um, that, uh, or like Firefox, right, was the first ones who jumped on WebAssembly in the very early mm-hmm. stages, and they're the ones who provided support for WebAssembly. Um, I think that was back in 2016, uh, and the other major browsers have followed suit. Um, so WebAssembly is already shipping in all the major browsers for quite some time now. Even Safari? Yeah, yeah Safari it's... was the laggard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they're yeah. they're in it now, huh? Yeah. So, yeah, so the the whole browser compatibility thing isn't so much of an issue and and also I guess that's more that's more of the client side model for Blazor. It, it requires WebAssembly. Server-side Blazor doesn't require that. So you could run server-side Blazor on any legacy browser, even like old versions of IE. Interesting. But it also makes you wonder, like, is server-side Blazor really Blazor as soon as you take WebAssembly out of the loop? Like, what are we doing? Well, it's ASP.NET uh, MVC Razor components. That's what <laughs> we were calling it before. Yeah, and I think so. They've re- they tried to rename it to differentiate between the server side model and the client side model, and then they just decided that that was confusing. So now it's all Blazor, and I think Blazor really refers to this powerful component model that could then target many different, um, you know, deployment or hosting models. Yeah, and that's ultimately what's made the difference. As long as you're building the software the right way and it runs well, have you experimented on the different? browser and platform combinations what do you have to do to make this app make these apps work well on phones or does the the component models take care of that uh yeah i mean so if you're running it in a in a browser um it just i mean it, it it delivers html to the browser so it's um you don't have to do anything special right. to make it work on it, devices right depending on i guess which which browser you choose to use on your device. So you don't have to do any of the, um, uh, the, the UI code, uh, CSS stuff that, you know, people get tripped up on to make it work everywhere. Well, okay. So the default templates that, um, are shipped with blazer today use bootstrap, which is, you know, the responsive framework, which can be used for targeting all different devices. Yeah, I'm just wondering how much uh, how much are you dependent on a third party component, uh, third party library then to make sure this stuff works, the, the Telerx and the DevXs and so forth of the world. Yeah, so Blazor itself isn't opinionated when it comes to, you know, creating a user interface. Uh, yeah. So you you can choose to use whatever components you want from third party vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, you can choose to use Bootstrap, or you can choose to not use Bootstrap, or you can choose to use whatever you want. Right. So you 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 are in control of it. Ultimately, yeah, I'm just worried about how I squeeze HTML specific syntax out through C sharp running on the server side. Yeah, you'd make a component. Yeah, the component will generate your markup for you and ship it over over SignalR right. to the browser. Yep. How tough is it to make a component? Uh, it's pretty simplistic. I mean, uh, so you can obviously go to the uh, the Blazor site. Um, and you can see a lot of decent documentation that's there. You can spin up an example Blazor site within Visual Studio as long as you're using the, the Visual Studio 2019 preview edition at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and components, obviously, it's really simple to create a really simple component, um, yes. <laughs> which is the, <laughs> the same like Hello World, really simple. Um yeah. As you start to build more elaborate applications, um, I mean, it has its own life cycle, you know, so you have to get acquainted with the different life cycle events that are part of the Blazor model, um, similar to the way you had to get acquainted with life cycle events in previous models like MVC or web forms. You think we're going to see some tooling in uh, Visual Studio or what does the tooling look like today anyway? Yeah, so uh, the tooling is good. Like so, and this was one, another of the reasons why client-side Blazor isn't shipping in September, whereas server-side is. So, if you're developing server-side, the full Visual Studio debugging experience just works perfectly well today, right? You can set breakpoints in your Blazor component, step into it, look at variables, everything. Um, it's just CHTML, right? That's right. Yeah, yep. CSHTML. Yep, and uh, client-side. 
it doesn't work so well yet. Uh, they're still working on that Visual Studio experience. Um, so it's it's not as productive today to develop client side. You end up having to use your you know your browser developer tools and um, you know looking at the the output window, looking at the console <laughs> to see if there's errors. So um, that's not as productive for client side. But I'm I know that they're working on having a sort of a, a very consistent debugging experience across both hosting models in the future. It looks very cool. And then uh, the other thing is. Um, it, it also works in, in VS Code, so you don't have to use Visual Studio. Yeah, and again, we get into the complexities of actually building your own components. That's where I'm thinking, how does my control collapse down in a smaller form factor into you know some less space-consuming thing? Like The devil's in the details here. Well, you still have to understand, I guess, how to write um, HTML and use CSS to target different devices, just like you do today right. in any spa framework uh, you have to have people who are familiar with the techniques for dealing with ui um, and different form factors in the browser and therein so, lies this case for this component model and, and for the average developer who needs to build forms over data that works on a phone as well as a pc and just saying go buy a component library and they are taking care of that problem for you so you can just focus on the domain area you need to work on right Interesting times, mm. man. I just wonder if this thing's going to break out in a big way. It feels right. It does feel right. And, you know, if Steve Sanderson's behind it, it's probably going to be pretty awesome. Yeah. Man <laughs> does consistently spit out genius on a routine basis. It's, it's kind a of genius annoying, factory, really. yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the whole team that's been working on Blazor, I think, are all uh, a real passionate group. Um, but, you know, they came into it so carefully, Sean. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, why why did they hesitate for so long? I mean, they're committed now. It's going to be a product. But they, I don't say they sat on it for a year, but the whole, you know, first it was Sanderson's project, then it was just experimental. Like, what do you think of all of that? In the early days, the uh, the focus was on the client-side model. Mm -hmm. And at that stage, you know, WebAssembly was pretty new as well. Um and there were some challenges. Like so, the very first um, prototype that Steve Sanderson put together, um, it was a it was a proof of concept, and it worked. Uh, it used a very sort of a not very well known uh, open source um, port of .NET called I think it was .NET Anywhere. Right, right. Um, something that something that was originally designed for smaller. Devices with smaller amounts of resources, right? And I think at the point when Steve was using it, it was abandonware too. Like, like nobody was working on it anymore, right? So once they realized that that um, wasn't going to scale, then luckily they found out that the Mono team was also working on a, a WASM port um, of Mono, and so they were able to move to that. And so I think it's it's behind the scenes. There's been sort of an evolutionary process as they figured out how they could actually deliver something that was like an enterprise grade technology. And, and, and maybe the problem was, you know, Steve demonstrated something that looked so amazing such a long time ago. That the question is like, why did it take so long to get to this point? Well, I think we all know as technologists that <laughs> there's a lot more that goes into developing really solid software. So you look at a proof of concept and, you know, it's not the end result. No. And, and yeah, and I'm not going to say smoke and mirrors, but yeah, there are some very key changes along the way that are just not visible to the, to the average person mm. uh, and, and where they got to there. But it, I also thought everybody sort of hesitated on, is WebAssembly a good idea? There was, there was, there was, when I, once I saw Rust show up and Golang show up, then I'm like, okay, well, and clearly there's some other people who think that, that WebAssembly is a good idea. Well, I'm, I'm for one, I'm glad that they're taking their time because it's kind of important that they nail it. You know, that they attach their, hitch their wagon to the right horse instead of horses. Yeah, I think it is important that there's other um, languages that have jumped on to WebAssembly. Um, like, so there's already a, a large community that's forming around that technology. And I think that Microsoft, in this case, got in early enough that when they, you know, come out with the final product, it's going to be a complete product, right? It's not going to be a half-baked product just just to play catch up, right? They're going to, you know, they're going to be there at the table with something that's uh, like a real 
set of tools that developers can use. You know, let's also just think about the 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 component ecosystem, as I was saying before, that this enables. Uh, you know, we could find ourselves back thinking about being back in those days where you could just uh, you know drag and drop components onto a page and set properties and do a lot of the programming just by metadata without actually you know just focusing on the code itself not so much plumbing yeah because i think with these single page applications built on these javascript frameworks we've got quite a far distance away from that kind of development model <laughs> um like so it's the the size of some of these projects have grown um <laughs> quite substantially they're not as simple as they once were uh, and I think that there's room now for, uh, you know, a more pr- productive framework to emerge that can simplify things. Well, can't wait for September. This is going to be fun. Yeah. Yep. It's going to be a good September. Yeah. What are your plans between now and then? Um, I am going to enjoy a little bit more of summer. <laughs> I'm going to uh, try to get uh, Octane into... Uh, a more, I guess what I would call MVP state um, so that I can try and coincide something that's fairly fairly strong at the same time that uh, the Blazor server side ships with uh, .NET Core 3. Sounds good. Well, we'll have to have you back and talk about it later. All right. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You got it, Sean. It's great talking to you. All right. And that's the show. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a-